most of you know that I can't sing worth a lick. Uh, amen. That, that's true. I mean, that, I mean, I'm just telling you. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and many of you have heard my testimony. Uh, I came to know Christ out of a very uh, deep life of uh, rebellion and, uh, and sin. And uh, God just uh, rescued me from that uh, sinkhole. Uh, but I can tell you, folks, uh, once I came to know Christ, uh, I love to sing. I love to sing His praises. And I, I still do, whether it's in my uh, private devotions or here in corporate worship. Uh, I do make a joyful, at least noise, unto the Lord. Uh, I don't know how pretty it is, but uh, it truly is joyful because it does come from my heart. And I, and I trust that uh, you also know the great joy and the liberty of singing His, His praises. We have been in a sermon series on the life-giving power of God's Word. Uh, so far, there have been three messages in this sermon series. In the first message, we examined the very end of 1 Peter chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, where we discovered that God's Word is the living, eternal seed of God that has the power to purify the human soul, to perfect the heart and love love for God and a love for one another, to perpetuate eternal life and to produce spiritual growth. In the second message, we looked at the parable of the sower that portrays Jesus Christ, our Lord, as a sower who sows the seed of God's Word into human hearts. And in that parable, we discovered that although God's Word has the power to effect change in our lives, it's not automatic. We have responsibility in that process as believers, and we must prepare our hearts to receive and respond to God's Word. The heart is like a garden, and, that, and a garden has to be tilled. It has to be weeded before that seed can take root and blossom and produce growth. And then in the third message, we looked at how do you do that? How do you prepare your heart to receive God's Word? How do you respond to God's Word? And uh, that message was entitled, How to be Transformed by the Bible. The text was from James, the first chapter. Now, this morning, we come to the fourth and the final message in this uh, little mini-series, and I've entitled this message, Obedience to God's Word, The Choice to See God's Glory. And it will take me this Sunday and next Sunday uh, to complete this message. So I hope you uh, picked up a copy of the sermon notes, and uh, we'll begin uh, this morning. You can bring those notes back with you next Sunday as we complete the message then. I thought it was important as we conclude this series on the life-giving power of God's Word to see how crucial it is to obey God's Word, that obedience is the trigger that releases the power of God in our lives and in our circumstances. And I first want us just to see a very simple definition of obedience. I've given this definition to you before, but I think it's important to remind ourselves and to review. 
And you'll see that there are four components. First, obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do. Obedience is doing exactly what I am told to do. Look at James chapter 1 there in your sermon notes, verse 22, and then verse 22 or a portion of verse or 25. It says, but don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. And if you do what it says, don't, and don't forget what you've heard, then, then God will bless you for what? For doing it. Not knowing it, but for doing it. As we saw in the message two weeks ago, the Bible is God's blueprint for our lives. But what good is it to study and learn the blueprint if you never get around to building your life according to it? See, too many Christians think that because they are increasing in their knowledge of the Bible, that they are growing as Christians, and that is not necessarily true. See, you need to be aware, beware of the danger of becoming so content studying the blueprint and dreaming of your heavenly home that you never build anything of eternal significance in this life. Look at the second component of obedience. Obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it. Obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it. I love Psalm 119, verse 60. It says, I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. Isn't that a great verse? And that should be the attitude of every believer. I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. What's one of the favorite line of parents? Slow obedience is what? No obedience. Uh, when you think about it, there are really only three reasons we hesitate uh, in our obedience. And the first is we question God's authority. And this is why Jesus says, well, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? Uh, all of you have heard you know, Carissa's little story when she was our youngest child, when she was very young, and she didn't want to obey me on a particular occasion. And, and I asked her, I said, Carissa, who's the boss of this family? And she looked right up at her daddy and said, Daddy, you may be the boss, but I'm in charge. And, uh, and again, we laugh at that, but sadly, uh, that's often our struggle as believers. We want to say, Lord, 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 but we want to maintain control. Uh, we want to be the one in charge, but we need to realize that faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. The Scripture is very, very clear. We validate our faith in Christ through our obedience to Christ. And when you think about it, the only way you can truly validate that Jesus is Lord is what? By obeying Him, by obeying Him. The second reason I think that we often hesitate in our obedience is we question God's wisdom. And what's behind that? Just stinking pride. We think we know how to do it better, don't we? And, uh, and we need 
to be able to surrender our lives to God, to surrender God to God, believing that He does know best, that He is that master architect, that He does have the plan, and that His plan is the best plan. And the third reason we often question or hesitate in our obedience is we question God's love. And, and how do you know that that is happening, fear and worry? When you're eating up with fear and worry, you know that you're doubting God's love because the Scripture says what? Perfect love cast out what? Cast out fear. So often when we begin to question whether or not God cares for me, whether He really loves me, uh, I get eaten up with fear, and that fear often paralyzes me, and I hesitate in taking that step of obedience. So obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it. But notice the third component, which is so very, very important, with the right, notice, heart attitude. So obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Psalm 119, verse 69, I obey your commands with all my heart. Psalm 119, verses 47 and 48. How I delight in your commands. How I love them. I honor and love your commands. I meditate on your decrees. You see, it's important to understand that God desires that our obedience be motivated by more than just duty and obligation. God desires our, our obedience to be an expression of our love, of our reverence to Him. You know, you can obey God like the little boy who, when ordered to sit down, said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Or you can obey God like the employee who obeys his boss only because he wants to receive the benefits and avoid the consequences. But the highest form of obedience, the kind that God seeks, is to obey him because you want to. It's not duty, but it's delight. Again, you see your obedience as an opportunity to express your love to Him. You see your obedience as an opportunity to worship Him, to follow Him. So obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude, and then there's one last component, and that's the focus of the message today and next Sunday which ushers me into God's glory. Obedience ushers me into God's glory. Look at John 14, verse 21. Jesus said, those who accept my commandments and obey them, those who accept, receive my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. See, folks, what is God's glory? Very simply, get this down in your notes, it is God Himself. What is God's glory? It is God Himself. If you trace that concept of the glory of God from the earliest chapters in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, it's always a manifestation of God's presence. It's basically God showing up and revealing Himself, putting Himself on display. So our obedience is that trigger that ushers us in 
to have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, to experience His reality in our lives. Look there in your notes. To experience God's glory is to experience God's power to strengthen me. And I'm talking about His strength being perfected, what? In our weakness. We're not talking about necessarily feeling strong. We're talking about knowing the midst of our weakness and human frailty, knowing God's strength perfected. We're talking about God's provision to meet my need. That's confronting and seeing God's glory. It's God's love to assure me when I'm going through a difficult time to know His tender affirmations. It's God's wisdom to guide me. It's God's peace to calm me, even in the midst of the storm. It's God's holiness to convict me. It's God's forgiveness to liberate me. It's God's righteousness to purify me. And so the question for each of us today and next Sunday is this. Would you like to experience God's glory in your life? Because the Christian life was meant to be a relationship, an intimate relationship, where you experience God's presence, where there's the awareness of God's presence, and where He's revealing Himself in His reality to you. Would you like our church to experience God's glory? Well, if we do, look again at John 14, 21 there in your notes. Those who accept my commandments, those who welcome them into their lives and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. That is a promise. He says, Jesus, if you obey me out of a heart of love, that will usher you into my glory. I will reveal myself to you. So obedience to God's Word is the key. Doing exactly what I'm told, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude that ushers me into God's glory. Now what I want us to do, and we'll just have an opportunity just to begin this this morning. Matter of fact, we'll just cover that first point and then in there. We want to look at an example of a family who discovered that obedience to Christ is what ushers a person into God's glory. And I'm referring to the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, you remember, and let me just re- remind you, rehearse the story for you. Uh, you find it in John chapter 11. And you remember that Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, what happened in, at the beginning of chapter 11? What happens to Lazarus? He dies. Right, he dies. And matter of fact, the Scripture says the one who Jesus loved died. Uh, well, I mean, at the, I'm sorry, at the beginning of the chapter, it says the one who Jesus loved became sick. So before, of course, his death, he became sick. And remember when he became sick, what did Mary and Martha do? They sent servants to chase down Jesus. And their thinking was exactly the way you would think they would think. They Hey, we've seen Jesus heal hundreds of people. We've seen Jesus heal hundreds of perfect strangers. But this is Lazarus, the one he loves, the one that he has a very close friendship with. I mean, he has spent many hours in our home visiting here in Bethany. And they were just absolutely confident, these two sisters, if they could simply get the word to Jesus, Jesus would come running and he would heal their brother. And he actually was not that far from Bethany. 
and it was not difficult for the servants to find them. And they said, Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha is asking you to come. And then how did Jesus respond? He just sat there. He just sat on his hands, and he did absolutely nothing. And he just waited a couple of days. And then he turns to his disciples and says, okay, we're going to Bethany now. We're going back into Judea. Lazarus is dead. Disciples were a little confused. Uh, they thought, well, you're saying he's just uh, sleeping? No, no. He says he's dead. So they go into Bethany. And you remember what happened as they walk into Bethany? First comes Martha. And you remember Martha's response to Jesus? If you had only been here, my brother would be alive today. I mean, she was struggling with anger. She was struggling with disappointment with Jesus. Jesus had let her down. He had not done what she would have expected him to do. And then Jesus looked at her and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha goes, oh, well, I, I know that he'll rise on the last day. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he be dead, he shall live. He said, do you believe this? And then if you're familiar with the story, here comes Mary. And you remember Mary's question to Jesus? Same thing that Martha asked. He said, Jesus, why didn't you come? You know, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. He would be alive. So then that Jesus makes his way to the tomb, moved with compassion. Remember, he, he says that uh, the shortest little verse in, in the Bible, Jesus wept when he saw the grief of the sisters, despite the fact he knew what he was about to do. He was just moved by their hurt, by the anguish and pain of their hearts. And he goes to the grave, to the tomb, and he gives a command. And he said, uh, roll this stone away, remove this stone. And you remember, when he gave the command, Martha initially objected. She said, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, he's been in that grave for four days. I mean, he's in decomposition, decay. It's going to stink. And, and she resisted. And he looks at her and he said, didn't I tell you, if you would believe me, you would see the glory of God? And so then they had the stone removed. And you know the story, how Jesus then prayed. And then he just simply said what? Lazarus, come forth. And then Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. And he came out of that tomb. And they removed the grave clothes and, and fed him and continued to fellowship with them. Now, I just want to point out three things. And again, just the first point today. Look there in your notes. When God wants to display His glory, when He wants to display His glory in your life, when He wants to reveal Himself to you or to others, He always calls for a step of obedience. He always calls for a step of obedience. Now, it's when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, He gave Mary and Martha a command, an opportunity to obey Him, and in obedience to that command, it would what? It would usher them to God's glory, to see God's reality, His power, His majesty be put on display right before them. 
And the command was what? Roll the stone aside. Roll the stone aside. 11, uh, John eleven thirty nine. Now, notice three truths, just three truths as we close about his command to remove the stone. First, the call to obedience was abundantly clear. The call to obedience was abundantly clear. In other words, there was no question about what they were to do or that they were the ones responsible to do it. God is always clear with His children, and that's one of the reasons He's written His commands down what? In black and white. Black and white, right here in the book. If there's a lack of clarity, the problem is never God's inability to communicate, but it's our unwillingness to obey. So the first thing that we need to see about God's call to obedience is that it is always abundantly clear. I mean, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, the problem isn't our lack of understanding. It's, 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 it's the issue of willingness. The second thing that we need to see, not only was the call to obedience abundantly clear, it was seemingly ridiculous. It was seemingly ridiculous. See, you have to admit that this seemed to be a very, what, strange command. You don't normally go around opening graves. I think we would all admit to that. Uh, and think of a few questions that this command could have stimulated in the, in the minds of Mary and Martha. Is he really serious? Why? Why would he be asking such a thing? I mean, if he was going to help Lazarus, why didn't he do it before Lazarus died? You know, what good, what, what good reason could he possibly have for asking us to do this? Now, listen, beloved, very, very carefully. This is not a, this is a very easy message to comprehend, but it's very challenging to live. God has a habit. God has a habit of commanding people to do things that seem ridiculous. And you just go through the Bible. I'll just state a few examples, just a very, very few. Remember Joshua at Jericho. You know, here are the armies of Israel facing the greatest military fortress in all of Canaan. And what was God's battle plan? To march around the city for seven days and to toot their little horns and sing and shout. But as they obeyed God, what happened? That was the trigger to release God's power. And those walls came what? Tumbling down. And if you read back there, Joshua chapter 6, the command was abundantly clear. I mean, God, it was abundantly clear. You know, walk around the city six days, and on the seventh day, seven times, and blow the horn, shout. But it was seemingly ridiculous, especially to a military man of the caliber of Joshua, who was a great military strategist for years under the leadership of Moses, a great commander-in-chief. Folks, that would have been a little strange what he was asked to do. Think of Gideon. Here's another great example. You familiar with the story of Gideon? God calls Gideon, this very timid guy, very fearful guy, 
overwhelming sense of inadequacy, he raises Gideon up to overthrow the Midianites who have conquered the nation of Israel at the time. And so, uh, this reluctant, real fearful guy, he raises his army of 32,000 Israelites. Now, you might think that's pretty significant, but we're told the Midianites had a much superior force, just superior numbers. It said their camels alone, the Bible says their camels alone outnumbered the sands on the seashore. But at least he had these 32,000. So, Gideon gets them together, and, you know, he's, he's sort of waiting for the game plan. And uh, God says, uh, there's too many. Hmm. So, you remember the little drill that he, he devised to, to weed them out. And now Gideon's down to 10,000 guys. And God looks at him and says, Gideon, you still got too many. And now he devises another little test. And then he's down to 300 men. 300 men. And then you remember what they did. They took their, the, those torches with the little trumpets, blew them, and sent the enemy into confusion. God did a miracle. In other words, their obedience, the point is, their obedience supernaturally released the power of God, and God's glory was put on display. Here's a good one. How about Elijah with the widow? You familiar with this story? Israel's experience of famine. Elijah visits the home of this widow. She has one son. He says, fix me something to eat. The widow says, all I have is this tiny bit of flour and oil. And right before you came, I began to prepare this one last little cake for me and my son for us to eat it and die. Elijah looks at the woman being directed by God. And he says, take what you have. Fix it and give it to me. Boy, didn't that, didn't that sound selfish <laughs> on the part of that prophet? Give it to me. But he gave her a promise. He says, if you do that, God's going to make provision. He's going to make provision supernaturally for you. And you know the story. He, she made the little cake, gave it to Elijah, which would have left her and her son absolutely nothing. But it says from that time on throughout the entire famine, God what? He supernaturally, supernaturally provided what? Flour and oil through that whole time for the widow and her son. How about Peter? Remember, this was uh, very early in Christ's ministry. Remember, the disciples had been fishing all day. And uh, uh, they were just sort of disgusted, disappointed. Uh, but Jesus borrowed Peter's boat. And used it as a, as a pulpit and preached to the people on the shore. And then when he finished his message, he turns to Peter and some of the other disciples. He says, hey, take your boat out into the deep waters and cast your nets. Peter looked at him like he was an absolute idiot. Because what he was asking to do was absolutely ridiculous. Everyone on the Sea of Galilee. And remember, Peter was a professional fisherman along with many of those other disciples. And they knew, you don't catch fish in the deep waters, you catch fish in the shallow water. And they had been fishing all night and had caught nothing. And so he's doing, telling them to do something that is totally against everything they know as professional fishermen that had been doing this for years. And remember what Peter said? He, he didn't quite understand. He thought it was ridiculous, but he made this. Nevertheless, at thy word, what? I'll do it. I'll obey. 
And you remember when they did it, what happened? This huge drought of fish. And Peter knew that he was in the presence of God, the very glory of God. You remember what, what he did? He threw himself on his face down in that boat, and he said, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinner. And Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, Peter, you don't need to fear, because from now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. Follow me. What was he teaching, Peter? You obey me, even when it seems ridiculous. And I'll, it'll usher you into my glory, and I will empower you to be a fisher of men, to know a great, great harvest. Now, why does God often ask us to do something that seems ridiculous and un, unreasonable? Why? Because it's all about, now listen, because it's all about learning to trust God. That's the issue. Are you willing to trust Him? See, God's glory is best seen against the backdrop of impossibilities that only He can resolve. This is why you, your family, our church family, will be given opportunities to obey Him in situations, circumstances, that are brilliantly disguised by God as impossible situations. So is God asking you to do something right now that seems foolish or ridiculous? Now, not only was God's command abundantly clear and seeming ridiculous, look at the last thing there. It was emotionally difficult. Don't miss this. It was abundantly clear, seemingly ridiculous, but it was emotionally difficult. Think of the reality of the moment. Here are two sisters grieving over the death of their brother, and Christ is asking them to open his grave. Christ was asking them to do something that went deeply against the grain of their emotions. And perhaps God is asking you to do something right now that is equally emotionally difficult. Maybe God is asking you to confess or forsake a sin. Maybe God is asking you to step out and forgive someone who deeply hurt you, who deeply wounded you. And you know, you, you look at the Scripture, you know the command is abundantly clear. But you think in this situation, this is ridiculous in light of what this person has done to me and their attitude, and they're gloating over it even to this day. And everything about you wants to get revenge instead of to forgive. And it's emotionally difficult. Everything's telling you to run from this individual rather than run toward this individual and to forgive and, and to embrace. Maybe, maybe God's given you a, an abundantly clear command to love someone who seems unlovable right now. It might be your marriage partner. It might be a child. It might be a coworker. Maybe it's to be honest right now, to be transparent with your marriage partner or with your child or one of you young people with your parents, and you're finding it difficult to be honest, to be transparent, and to share your heart, but you know God is asking you to do that. Maybe it's to endure something that is hard, to stay put when you want to run, to stay put when you want to run. I was, was in a counseling session not long ago with a, with a uh, 
a marriage partner. And they knew in the situation that they were in, God wanted them to remain, wanted them to continue to love, to continue to invest in a very difficult situation. But let me tell you, it was emotionally difficult in light of the situation. And they wanted to run. But God was saying, stay. And love them as I've loved you, unconditionally. Maybe it's to share Christ. Maybe it's to share Christ with a, with a family member, or a friend, a neighbor, or, or a coworker. Maybe it's to step out in faith and to get involved in a ministry or to, to give a gift or, or to begin tithing. I mean, it could be a million and one different things. But, but note this. If God is calling, here's the point. If God is calling for a step of obedience, it is a sure indication that he's about to display his glory in your life. What an opportunity. That's how we need to see it. And even when it's emotionally difficult, look to our Savior and His example and say, Oh, Lord, okay, not my will, but what? But thine be done. Remember Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Lord, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, I don't want to move toward the chorus. I don't want to embrace the cross. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And what was the greatest demonstration of God's glory. The cross, which led to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, God is asking you to do something emotionally difficult, but it's just a clear indication that He's about to display His glory in your life. So what, what is God asking you to do right now? What is he asking you to do that's abundantly clear, seemingly ridiculous, but emotionally difficult? And will you obey God? Will you do what God is telling you to do when he tells you to do it with the right heart attitude, knowing that your obedience will usher you into God's glory? And the choice is what? Yours. The choice is yours. And so I urge you, obey. Step out and obey. Believe God and see His glory. Father, thank you for what I trust has been just a very simple but a very practical message. And Lord, when we say simple, we don't mean that it's not without its challenges and its difficulties. We've already talked about that. Often your commands are emotionally difficult for us to embrace and to perform and to obey. But Lord, open our eyes this morning. Help us to see that whenever you ask us to obey, it is an indication that you're about to display your glory. And so, Lord, let us not be so foolish to miss that opportunity but give us the grace uh, to obey you and to obey you when you ask us and with the right heart attitude. And so, Lord, uh, continue to speak to our hearts. Continue to transform in us into the image of your Son. Uh, for it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended today, I, I know this message, this series has uh, been directed right to uh, believers 
uh, hopefully giving us a greater appreciation of God's Word and how God wants to use His Word to change our lives, to grow us in our relationship with Christ. And I trust if you're a believer, God has spoken to you and He's put His finger on specific areas possibly in your life. And I pray that uh, uh, you'll see the opportunity that you have to be ushered into God's glory this morning by obeying Him. And where maybe you've been hesitating and you've, you've been reluctant, uh, you'll leave here committed to taking that step that you've been struggling with. And impossibly you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. But as I just alluded to a moment ago, uh, Jesus uh, went to the cross and he went to the cross to die for you. And that was emotionally difficult for our Savior because He knew there on the cross there would not only be the physical suffering, but He who knew no sin would become sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He knew that He would become the target of His Father's wrath and fury because He was taking your place. He took the punishment that you deserved so that you could be spared the judgment of God as you would turn to Jesus and put your trust in Him and accept His forgiveness and surrender your life to Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And so today I would, I would plead with you to come to Jesus, to open up your heart, to ask Him in, to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, and then publicly profess Him before men not ashamed of Him, but glorying in His love and what He's going to do in your life. So I'll be standing at the front to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. If God's leading you to unite with the church, step out in faith, knowing that as you obey Him, uh, God will show you His glory right here as you get involved and invested in the life of the Edgewood family. So please stand as the invitation is extended.